Okay, great. So what we're going to do now is we're just going to do some question and answer stuff. And uh, this will be like a follow-up episode. So if there was anything that Max said or Tom or Glenn or I said that prompted a question, you know, we can, we can run with that. You know, don't feel like you have to make up stuff if you don't have any questions. But at the same time, if you have questions, we, we're happy to, to hear them. What I'll do is I'll repeat the question so that the people in podcast land will know what you said. And then we can respond to it. So anything you want to talk about? So we got a lot of, a lot of kids here. So when it comes to C.S. Lewis, is there a favorite story that, that maybe you've heard or read that uh, you have something you'd like to say about? Any Chronicles of Narnia fans? Got a few folks here. who. So what's your favorite uh, book in the Chronicles of Narnia? Anybody have a book they'd like to? Oh, yep, yep. You got the wardrobe. You know, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That's great. Horse and the Boy, okay. Last Battle, okay. So let's think about, go ahead. Yeah, so we've covered four of the seven. <laughs> we could talk about each of them. Now, are you all aware that, so we had, uh, just so folks know who are listening in, we had, uh, you know, uh, Land of Witch and Wardrobe, uh, the, uh, the Horse and His Boy, uh, The Last Battle, and was it The Silver Chair? So um, are you folks aware that there's been some scholarship identifying each of the books with the planets, um, cosmology? There's a book entitled Planet Narnia. And in the Middle Ages uh, and even earlier, uh, there were only f seven planets that people were aware of because they were the only ones visible in the sky. And by the way, they thought of... Uh, the sun and moon as planets, but they didn't think of the earth as a planet. Mm -hmm. And that's because they didn't have an ability to get off the planet earth and look back at it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so they didn't, they didn't think of it as a planet, but so those are the, the so you had uh, Mercury, Venus, the sun, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn and the moon. So all of those were planets and each of the stories correspond to a planet. Now, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, what would you guess is the planet? Now, if you know the answer and you've read the book, uh, you know, you, can, you've, you know, feel free to say it. But if, you've, if you just have a guess of, the, of all the planets that I, just, I named, what would you think it would be? Well, I'll tell you, it was Jupiter. So in the Middle Ages and, and earlier, the planets represented things in, in the minds of people, and the Ju and Jupiter is the king. That's the, the planet that corresponds to kingly virtues and characteristics. And what do you have in you know the land of which in the wardrobe is the revelation of Aslan as the king. And there are certain things that correspond with kingly, uh, sort of the kingly demeanor. And one of those things has to do with surprise, you know, surprise, surprise, his uh, jolly. Uh, characters or his uh, joviality. There's an interesting word. The word Jove is a word that's sometimes used for what? The planet Jupiter, but also the god Jupiter. So a jovial king is a king who is pleased with his kingdom and everybody is happy to be around him because he's, he's jovial. He's, he's fun to be with. 
And when you when you see, you know, Aslan appear at different points, he brings joy. There's a jovial character to things. And even the appearance of Father Christmas is intended to bring that, you know, uh, you know, th through. So the silver chair, which what do you think that one was? What was that? I'm sorry. Mercury. Good guess. Good guess. It was the moon. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there are certain things that we correspond. Ever hear the term loony, mm -hmm. lunar? So the moon was this thing that could make you kind of crazy. It was understood that it was sort of the sort of under the sphere of the moon or the influence of the moon. People behaved in odd ways. They turned into were werewolves mm -hmm. <laughs> for one thing. But other, you know, there was just this uh, this thing. The last battle, if I remember correctly, it was what, Saturn? Is that, is that right? Saturn? And then we had one more. Oh, oh uh, the horse and his boy, if I remember right, that's Mercury. I believe that's Mercury. Because you have two, the twins, right? So uh, Venus was, which one was that? I can't remember. Do you guys remember what Venus was? What did we... I know that uh, the Voyager of Don Treader is the sun. Uh, Silver Chair, I believe, is the moon. Venus was, and then you had you had Mars, which was uh, Prince Caspian. So, what, what's the last one I've missed? What's one of Magician's nephew? Okay, so that would be that. That was Venus then. Anyway, fun stuff. If you want to look it up, it's. Uh, Michael Ward is the author, and he's actually a theologian at Oxford. And the title of the of the book is Planet Narnia. Any other? Oh yeah, there there's lots of material that that Lewis uh, wrote on the planets. So, yep, and that's what the book Planet Narnia sort of. Uh, you know, helps people to see is all of these connections. Oh, uh, did, you know, what what did Lewis actually say about the planets, and do they court, does it connect to the Chronicles of Narnia? And that's what basically the book Planet Narnia is about. John mentioned a minute ago that um, Lewis faced opposition because of his Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So we. Yeah. So we had a question, uh, guys, concerning the writing of screw tape letters, and it's obviously one of Lewis's most popular books. And the question has to do with why would anybody have something negative to say about it or not like it? So, do you, either of you have anything you want to say about uh, that subject? Yeah, there, there are two reasons coming from radically different directions. One of them is Tolkien's objection that he believed that looking too close at what Satan was doing was just dangerous. Um, it, uh, the example of Saruman, who studied ring making and, and the devices of Sauron, and it turned him evil. And he was genuinely concerned about that, that looking too closely at what the devil does and how he does it could lead you astray. The other side of it, the people that are around him in Oxford um, probably had objections on the basis of one of two things. One of them being that it's a popular book and academics tend to look down their noses at popularizers. 
But the other part of it, I suspect, is if they did read the book, they may have seen themselves in too much of it. (laughs) Yeah, Lewis had a way. He was like Dante. You know, uh, he had people in mind with the with the the evil characters in some of his stories. So, you know, maybe those people would recognize themselves. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, By the way, I should uh, quick note. Planet Narnia is a more scholarly work. There's one called the Narnia Code that is aimed at a more general audience. Right. Who wrote the Narnia Code? I can't remember. Michael Ward. Oh, so yeah. he did that one too. Okay. And he, he has yeah. one on the, I think, on the abolition of, of man that just came out more recently as well. So he's, he's definitely putting material out. Yeah. Yeah. After Humanity, I think, yeah. is that book, yeah. if I remember right. So if you're interested in, 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 you know, Lewis, in terms of the, the range of things that Lewis wrote, it's pretty uh, ex- extensive. There are all sorts of things that he's, you know, addressing. There's the popular stuff, obviously, the, you know, the books uh, for kids. Uh, but in terms of his uh, Christian apologetics, there's mere Christianity and uh, the problem of pain and uh, miracles, but then uh, some of his work uh, in uh, analyzing contemporary culture like Abolition of Man or uh, Present Concerns, a series of essays in which he's talking about popular life and stuff. But also then there's his literary stuff, you know, so like an experiment in criticism um, and the things that he did uh, with regard to his own, you know, scholarship and medieval and renaissance studies that are fascinating and and perhaps the most influential book that he wrote for me is one of his least popular books and that's uh the discarded image that that played a very large role in my own uh writing yeah that's a really important book um you actually omitted lewis's favorite of all of his books which was still we have faces yeah, yeah. again that's a that's fiction but it's his i think his least popular novel uh, yeah, it's a retelling it's a of the Greek myth of Cupid and Psyche. Yeah. Right. But it's such a challenging read for most people. <laughs> you know, whereas with his other fiction, there's a there's a real kind of avuncular, you know, sort of uh, friendly tone. Uh, you don't have that with Till We Have Faces. Speaking of the abolition of man, um, earlier you mentioned that uh, in the, the movie kind of alluded to this as well. He was a relatively, um, he didn't pull his punches as yeah. a scholar. Why do you think he didn't name the authors of the Green Book? Yeah, yeah. So the question that was asked was uh, concerning the abolition of man and the notorious Green Book uh, that he, uh, you know, critiques in the first part of the abolition of man. And the fact that he didn't name the authors. Why was that? So uh, any any uh, conjecture as to why Lewis was suddenly polite? <laughs> I, I think I remember reading something about this. Uh, maybe Ward covers this actually at the beginning of his his recent book on it because I do remember this uh, question coming up recently. I mean, and I think I mean one of the I think one of his points you know could have been just he didn't want to really promote the the work that he was getting it out of. Or it could have been just this would become very familiar anyway with with it starting to really reach, you know, the popular mindset that 
that you're going to hear about it all along. He could just use a generic work as one to kind of use as a reference without condemning anyone who was probably within his circles. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, and along with that, by keeping it, the book vague, it can apply to multiple books. Yeah. You know, um, because really the Green Book wasn't unique. Right. It was representative of an entire approach to education. And so if you narrow it down to criticizing that book, it might distract from the broader point that it's really not just this one. Yeah, he was uh, he was attacking an entire trend. Yes. And we're actually on the on the backside of that trend that he that he was critiquing. Yeah, and it even shows up in Narnia. Good heavens, what are they teaching these children in school these days? (laughs) That's right. That's right. Or uh, experiment school. Yeah. Uh, And, uh, you know, I think the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, where we're introduced to Eustace Clarence Scrub, the enthusiastic student at experiment school, who uh, sees better of his, you know, of things later. One of the great opening sentences of all literature. His name was Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. So, Matt, I saw you had a question. Talk about his, how his friendships, everybody knows Tolkien. Tolkien wasn't the only friend he had. So how did, how did his friendships sharpen him even after you know, his time going through school? Eventually, he finished school, and a lot of people think, well, after you finished you put in your time, you have the letters now, you don't have to worry about that. He did not stop gathering, being sharpened. So, so just talk about how he and his friends would sharpen each other. So the question uh, concerns uh, the Inklings, but I think it even goes beyond the Inklings. Uh, Lewis had a number of friends. Uh, you know, we've talked about Tolkien a lot, but also Charles Williams and you know, Owen Barfield, Hugo Dyson, um, and, you know, many more. The, 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 he was a gregarious person. He had lots of friends. Um, so the question is, is how did those friendships strengthen his scholarship? You know, the iron sharpening iron element to it. Any thoughts? Well, he developed his friendship with Tolkien because they were working on reading old Icelandic sagas together. You know, Tolkien was, was uh, I, I think it was, he was more or less uh, acting as a tutor to them, teaching them the old Icelandic. And whenever you're working at that kind of intense level, it is going to be, um, it, it's going to, especially with the kind of fields Lewis is in, it's kind of a spillover effect on the other stuff that you're doing. You know, so just on that level, you've certainly got that going on. Yeah, you've probably seen the, entry in Lewis's diary when he first met Tolkien, where he, he says, in effect, you know, uh, he's uh, something, he, he makes a comment that's kind of uh, condescending to, to Tolkien in, in terms of his stature. He's, he's not a, he wasn't a tall guy, and Lewis was a tall guy. And then something also to the effect that a few slaps would shape him up. <laughs> in other words, he was, an okay, he was okay, but a few slaps would shape him up. <laughs> that kind of thing. But that's kind of guy humor anyway. That's, 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 you know, adult men do you know, talk about each other and each other's presence <laughs> in those terms all the time. <laughs> but uh, uh, your, any thoughts you have, Tom, on that? Um, I, I know just that 
from reading a lot about his friendships that they were definitely ones that after he bumped into them, they, they were kind of long-term. I think Owen Barfield is a good example, someone he loved to argue with all the time. Um, it was sort of like fencing for him. He enjoyed the, the arguing. They both enjoyed it, but their friendship was deep and warm as well. Oxford is a lot like that. I mean, my time there, I still have friends that I keep in touch with, and, and you, you kind of bump into them. You, you kind of challenge each other, um, and, and you kind of go through this process with people that are all committed to doing the hard labor of trying to learn things and the love of learning. And the love of you know the transcendentals, and uh, and I think that that stuff just fed him. He really fed from it, and others fed from what he had to give. Yeah, you know when you think about his book, The Four Loves, uh, one of those uh, loves is Philos, uh, and um, in that chapter, if I recall correctly, he really praises friendship as perhaps the richest of the loves. Uh, because it's, uh, you know, in contrast with the others, something that's chosen uh, and there's a common good that you're pursuing alongside each other. So it's kind of a shoulder to shoulder dynamic as opposed to Eros, which is more face to face kind of dynamic. Um, so I think he had a had a and then a, then there's the whole matter of his friendship. Uh, that led to, well, you know, he was in the trenches. I don't remember the name of the friend that he made the promise that he would care for his, you know, they, they promised each other they would care for each other's families if they survived. Each one of them survived. And so that led to Lewis caring for uh, this friend's mother, who was a very difficult person for years. And uh, anyway, he took, his, he took his friendships very seriously. I was going to ask um, about uh, one of the comments you made at the beginning came from uh, Screw Tape and how the, the work of the devil is is not so much putting ideas into their head but keeping ideas out. Right. And and I kind of tied in with your comments about uh, education and a tutor. And I, I feel like I, I want to tie this into a question about homeschooling and and. I think a temptation that we probably have as parents to to be too narrow, you know, or, or to not want to expose our kids to things that are dangerous. Well, how, how do you, how should we think about those kinds of things? Okay, so the question that uh, was asked had to do with uh, essentially this matter of tutoring and the sort of the, sort of the uh, I guess the challenging characteristic of that tutoring, not just simply in the sense that a child is being, you know, sort of cross-examined, but is also maybe being presented with um, material or ideas that uh, are kind of dangerous. You know, for example, if, if you're going to be an educated person, you, you really do need to read some Darwin. If you're an educated person, you really do need to read some Nietzsche. You, you know, there are some dangerous thinkers out there who've had a lot of influence on in our society. And if we're going to be able to uh, respond to their errors, we need, need to know what they were. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we have to read some of their stuff, yeah. not just recapitulations of it That's in sort right. of watered down terms. So any thoughts on that? First of all, 
One of the things I think we need to get past is the idea that everybody needs to have, you know, the kind of education that Lewis had. Okay. That's really not necessary. And um, as a result, you know, not everybody needs to read Nietzsche or Darwin. But if you are going to be engaged in the kind of uh, intellectual environment or intellectual life that Lewis had, then they, then you've got to read all kinds of things. And, you know, for people who are in that situation, is there a danger in reading them? Might they get, get led astray? Yeah, it happens. You know, it, it, it'd be foolish to state otherwise. Um, but on the other hand, uh, I think that there are ways where if you apply the principles that, let's say, someone like the great knock pounded, knocked into Lewis, um, <laughs> then uh, it, it allows you to create a situation where you can challenge those ideas as well. The danger comes when they're accepted uncritically. Right. I think that if you, um, and, and, and mostly they're presented in, in most secular contexts, they're presented as gospel. But if you have a, a um, more, I, I would argue, well-rounded education that allows you to challenge the stuff that you read, I don't think there's as much danger in it. Any thoughts, Tom? Yeah, I, I share a lot of what uh, uh, Glenn said there. And I, I would add that, you know, part of what we have to do, you know, in the world of academics is engage these things, uh, oftentimes directly, especially in theological work. It's hard not to have read these people, um, and only, you know, a few people who have read them and kind of given their some of what they teach. Um, I think, sadly, a lot of Christians um, just reiterate what one particular, you know, Christian thinker, usually a contemporary, thinks about these, and then they just kind of have never really engaged that material. And again, for a lot of people, that may be okay. But if you're going to enter into substantive um, critique with the culture and its ideas, it is good to be able to have the critical evaluative skills to be able to read, you know, Darwin and other things directly and critically, um, and, and really be able to foster counter arguments that show, you know, the importance of why you hold, you know, the faith's, you know, our faith's position on certain things and don't find those convincing. And I think one thing I, that I sadly have seen lost is the capacity to, to cultivate reason and argument and logic because of the fear of rationalism. Um, this is one of the things Lewis wasn't afraid of, nor the church for thousands of years, because it didn't turn reason into an idol. It was an instrument that served um, the gospel, um, but, it, but it was not to be eliminated from the gospel. And so because of that, the church worked rigorously through the core, you know, biblical vision and, and understanding of what it means to be a human to the point where they were able to deal with those arguments when they entered the Hellenic culture and other cultures because they knew what they held and they knew what the other held and why it was wanting and missing. And I, I think we have to kind of return to learning how to cultivate proper reasoning, argument, and not be afraid in a culture that looks at it merely as, as you just, uh, you know, projecting 
your will on on the rest of us. Um, Lewis was countering that kind of stuff then. I think we can do it now, and he's a he's a good uh, example of how to do it. Yeah, I'm going to make a final comment here, and I think we should wrap things up because I actually have to get back down to Birmingham and spend a miserable evening. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, in case you want to know what I'm talking about, you can write me. <laughs> but uh, we, we also have to keep in mind uh, kind of uh, the pedagogical stage of life that a child is in or a young person is in. So you just don't throw a bunch of things that overwhelm a, a, a person uh, in in, in you know, when they're not prepared for it. you don't throw a child, you know, uh, into the deep end of the pool. Uh, if there's been no instruction in how to swim, you know, there, there are just kind of common sense things we need to keep in mind when we do think about, okay, when is it the right time for this child to become a, uh, you know, to spend some time working with this thought or this concept or whatever. And, you know, often it's the teen years where the challenging material, uh, starts to, to, uh, come to the surface. And at that point, we need to have a, a really competent uh, tutelage to help a child through. So I've had people ask me, you know, you know, my, my, my children are all grown now and they're doing well. And, and uh, you know, they read Dostoevsky in their, in their spare time for fun and <laughs> stuff like that. But they were just regular kids, just like any other set of kids. And sometimes people would ask me, uh, you know, about, you know, how I worked with my kids. And, and somebody asked me... Uh, one time, if one of my children uh, came to me and said that, um, you know, there was something that some professor told him or her uh, that uh, was really, uh, I guess, uh, challenging to their faith, how would I respond? Well, the first thing I, well, I told them is, is, is uh, and this is me, and, you know, I'm not saying that every parent is in a position to do this, but I would say, First of all, I would laugh because <laughs> there really hasn't been anything I've, I've, uh, you know, seen presented uh, to other people that I haven't heard and wrestled with myself. And when you've when you've learned to wrestle with ideas and you've come out on top, uh, you tend to laugh, right? I mean, you, like when you're uh, wrestling with your kids when they're small, it's kind of amusing for everybody involved. Because there's, you're at a point where you know your kids really don't challenge you. It's just, just kind of a fun exercise. And so, now I know that's a very daunting thing for lots of folks to, you know, sort of think about who've not had, you know, the kind of opportunities I've had to to learn about certain things. But I, I say that primarily to kind of a, a provide an encouragement to folks. There, there are probably people in your sphere of, uh, acquaintances or, or friends who really have ras wrestled with some things that perhaps you've never been faced with before. And maybe if your child is being uh, challenged intellectually, there, there, there are resources out there. It doesn't mean that, you know, uh, all is lost. You know, you can, you can find some of these people to help out and, uh, work with your child through these things. And, you know, Hopefully they'll grow through them and be at a very, you know, be in a very good place uh, when they come out on the other side of it. Anyway, so we should probably wrap up. Uh, thanks a lot for coming out uh, and spending time with us. It's uh, quite remarkable that you know you wanted to spend your time with three old dudes talking about <laughs> some dead guy. So we're we're glad to have you. All right. So bye bye. Bye.
Bye-bye.